Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The founders established the Supreme Court of the United States in 1789. By then, most states had their versions of high courts already. Not Georgia. The Peach State was one of the last to establish its Supreme Court in 1846, but there have been many firsts since, including electing the first African-American woman as Chief Justice in 2005. The Honorable Leah Ward Sears broke a number of other precedents in her climb to the state's highest judicial title and did not stop there. The now retired Chief Justice joins me in the studio. Your Honor, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have to go way back to understand where this came from, the beginning. People may not know that you were born in Heidelberg, Germany. Your dad was stationed there. So did you move around a lot as That's a child? That's right. He was a, I'm a so-called military brat. So we did move around quite a bit. We just happened to be, my father and my father was stationed in Heidelberg, uh, when I was born in 1955. And then you moved to Savannah? You stayed no, there? No, we moved to California, where my younger brother was born. And then we moved back to the East Coast, uh, to the Washington, D.C. area, and all the suburbs. And then we moved down to Savannah. So were you living in town or on a base? Was it sort of traditional well, mil- military lifestyle? When I was born, yes. So throughout my life, sometimes we moved on, it was called an army post. So sometimes we moved and lived on post. and But uh, oftentimes, like in Savannah, we moved to the post. And then when he, my father retired, we bought a house in Savannah. He loved Savannah. So we bought a house in Savannah. And I went to uh, finished middle school there in high school. So what do you remember about life in Savannah? Uh, you know, it's very different than it is now. The uh, With the advent of the civil rights movement and the movement in of SCAD and the expansion of SCAD, uh, when we got to Savannah, Savannah was in decline. All those beautiful row houses, it was, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the historical historic preservation uh, hadn't yet caught on, but was catching on. But by, by the time that I left, uh, historical preservation was the name of the game. SCAD had come in, and now Savannah has become just a beautiful gem of a city in uh, southeast Georgia. It's a lovely place. But at that time, your father, an army officer, your mom was a a teacher. She was a teacher, yes. She taught in the public schools in Savannah, uh, reading and and writing. So is it a traditional military family? You know, the man is the boss? Yes. Yes, all that. And I think that probably had an impact on how I came out. It it, it, uh, wasn't... Look, I got a lot from being in that kind of structure, it was great, middle-class family, when at, when at the time there weren't that many black middle-class families. My father was a colonel, so he was highly revered. Uh, but it was also uh, pretty stifling for a girl, mm-hmm. probably stifling for everybody. But uh, the expectations of girls at that time was uh, go to college, find a mate, preferably a doctor, wear pearls, and, and keep your mouth shut. And so, that did not, did not appeal to me. Well, what did appeal to you? When did you start getting into the law? Why? What, what was the draw there for you? You know, when we came back from Germany, uh, I think being born in Germany was a 
was a good thing for me because uh, being born in Germany post-war to a dark-skinned man and a very light-skinned woman. So I wasn't, I was, there was some confusion about who was black and who was right. Mm -hmm. Not like it is here where, you know, one drop of black blood equals black. Mm -hmm. I just thought, I saw people more, I saw skin color like eye color Mm -hmm. did. So I was born overseas. Uh, So when I came back and there was, there wasn't a lot of racism, uh, probably because my father was a colonel. When I came back here, we came back on a ship landed in New York, and I noticed immediately the segregation of the races, and I'd never seen that before. That was very, very, I mean, it was, a remember mentioning it to my parents, and the look, looks on their faces was like, wow, uh, she has no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be something. Right. And it was shocking to me. And they just, they didn't explain it. I was like, why? We're in a part of town and everybody's black. And then we go to a part of town and everybody's white. And I said, it was in the backseat of the car, what's going on here? And they just looked at each other. Well, that's that, a, such a telling moment yeah. and such an abrupt distinction. Do, do you think that helped you form those early notions that you had of, let's say, justice yes. or injustice? Yes. I mean, I think those kinds of experiences, like I didn't, I, no one could ever a- answer why, 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 you know, it was always why, why. That's why? just the way it is. Yeah, was that's that exactly. the- No, they would, they weren't, they were smart people, you know, and they tried to do their best to answer. I mean, on the gender thing, it was, uh, that's the way it is, or that's how life is and you need to accept it. And if you don't accept it, you're going to spend the rest of your life miserable because there are some things you just have to accept. And the role of woman is to be helpmate. I mean, I was told that many times. And although I'm happy to help, that I never could see that. I never felt like I, that was my consigned role. I didn't understand why. Why? Why? I'm asking you now. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. I can't answer that okay, for you, Justice. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there were, I had all these why, why. And then finally in college, which, which was great, I loved going off to Cornell, very young, all by myself. I found out there is no good reason why. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. And if you want to make change, make change. Well, I I completely relate to what you're saying, though, that it's not necessarily announced, but it is reinforced in a lot of tiny little actions, a lot of little messaging. Every day, every moment. Yeah. So you went off to Cornell, got your law degree from Emory. Not many women pursuing these kind of degrees at that time, especially not women of color. So what was that like? I mean, there was no, no, did you have models or mentors or anybody that you were looking to? Well, I wanted to, I had been fascinated by a child with the uh, Warren era court. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, that so much of the civil rights litigation, we were going through the courts and... The Supreme Court, they would go through the state courts. The state courts got it all wrong. They'd go through the federal courts. It would be better. And then the Supreme Court would get it right. You know, this was during the time of Earl Warren. Earl Warren. Yeah, yeah. and he and uh, uh, for he was doing the right thing at the right time. And I, I, we would wait. You know, I'm a Brown versus Board of Education 
baby. I was born about the same time. So I really looked up to the courts as they'll get it straight. At that time, I could see that uh, they'll get it straight, gosh, eventually. Well, and that's interesting also because you, as a state Supreme Court justice, that was very much about the state's version of things versus the federal government version of right. things and the tension that was between those right. two. So something that you really grew up witnessing in a very direct way. Right, and wanted to do something that my goal was to be sort of like a mini uh, Thurgood Marshall when he was a lawyer. I never thought I would be a judge. I was wanted to go in court and make things right. Uh, but uh, Andy Young, Andrew Young, when he was uh, mayor of Atlanta, said that he needed more African-Americans on the benches in the city. And he tapped me to be one when I was 26 years old. So young. Yeah. If you're just joining us, my guest is the Honorable Leah Ward Sears. And we're talking about her childhood and how she developed an early passion for the law and where that landed her. So th- this is fascinating to me, you at that time looking at, you know, the, you grew up in the civil rights era. Right. Rather than seeing these activists, these people who are advancing the agenda and the conversation about African-Americans and equality, you looked to the courts. Right. That was something that you saw very early on as the way to go forward. Right. Now, so, remember now, I was a... Uh, a child. I married to a man who is 15 years older than I am. So we all have different, that era, people had different experiences. I was a kid. Uh, so I, I, I don't know, I wasn't out on the front lines because I was five and 10 years. So that my husband, for example, Haskell Ward, he was in the Atlanta student movement. And so during the time when I was looking to the courts, he was marching to Rich's department store, you know, from Clark Clark College with his friends. Uh-huh. And then there's Martin Luther King doing even more. So, Well, I want to reel back to you beginning your legal career. You were an attorney with very distinguished uh, Atlanta law firm of Alston and Bird. I mean, that is a heck of a place to begin. Yes, it is. So I you must pre- have done very well in law school. I did. Yeah. I did. I studied hard. And spent five years there. What were some of the lessons that you learned in those formative years of your legal career at such an esteemed firm? Oh, uh, how to practice law and practice law with excellence, mm-hmm. you know, verse, I mean, really how to delve deep. I'm very pleased that I, so I actually started, the, the name of the firm when I started was Alston, Miller, and Gaines. That's how dated I am. Two years later, uh, they merged with a firm named Jones, uh, Bird, and Howell. That's Bobby Jones's the, the golfer Bobby Jones's firm, and that created Alston and Bird. And I stayed a, an additional three years after that. And a firm like that, you learn, if you stick around, you learn how to practice law with excellence, how to do a, a, an outstanding job. And so I'm very glad I started my career there. But then you left the practice to begin a career in public service after, what, five years? Yes. What motivated that change? I liked being at Alston and Bird, but I am a people person, and I missed the daily interaction with uh, people. I, uh, Alston and Bird or a large, any large law firm, you're spending most of your time in your office drafting papers and talking to lawyers occasionally. But I wanted a daily conversation 
with uh, with human beings, and you get that when you're particularly when you're a traffic court judge, yeah. and you've got a <laughs> you're walk, Atlanta right. traffic exactly. court judge. You saw a lot of people, I imagine, it, it on a daily fa- basis. It was great. You mm-hmm. know, you take the bench, and it's just exciting. You have three hundred people sitting out there, and you're going to have a conversation with every one of them. So I, I was, I mean, I took a huge pay cut, but I was, it was just made me happy. It, I was very happy to do that. And in the next decade, serving in local city and county court systems, right, sharpening your skills, I'm imagining in many ways, and shaping your own definition of, of what it means to be a good judge. What did you learn in those early days about what it meant to be a good judge? Uh, you have to listen well. Uh, you have to be courageous. You cannot uh, open the paper, the newspaper, for example, or look at something on TV and decide based on the reports that that's how you should be ruled. You have to focus yourself in the courtroom, listen to the evidence, be courageous. Sometimes that means you're going to make decisions that even uh, you're not happy that you have to make. And as we head into a break, you are listening to We Shall Overcome by the Boys Choir of Harlem. We will be right back with former Justice Leah Ward-Sears. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 1992, the now-demolished Georgia Dome first opened its gates. That same year, Georgia voters approved the state lottery, and Governor Zell Miller appointed then-judge Leah Ward-Sears to the Georgia Supreme Court. And with that, she became the first woman and the youngest justice ever to serve on the state's high court. And she is joining me now in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. I'm, thank you. Thank you. Well, before the break, we were speaking a little bit about your childhood and education and how you made that move from private practice as a lawyer to public service judge in Fulton County. So by 1992, you're the youngest member of the state Supreme Court, first woman. What were those early years like? It must have turned some heads. It tur- it did. Uh, first, I was surprised to get the appointment because, again, I was a African-American, I was a female, and I was, mainly I was 36, but Governor Miller, when we had our interview, I explained to Governor Miller that I thought it was time for some uh, uh, generational diversity on the court as well, and I, I think he bought that, that it was time, that most of the men, they were all men, all much older men, and it, you know, it was time to jiggle things up a little bit. Well, so, so from the beginning, you're you're not trying to fit in. You are saying there needs to be something different. Oh, absolutely. You know, when you look like me, you just at a certain point, if you're saying you decide I'm not going to fit in. So I'm just going to be the best person I can be with as as who I am. So my father helped me get comfortable with that many years earlier, hmm. and I try to try to stick with that. He sounds like a big influence on you. Yeah, your he life. was a big influence. Yeah. So, and uh, my mother's style was a big influence. I had great parents. So, uh, but the yes, it was intimidating. I had to work very very hard. Uh, I did not want, you know, I felt when I went in that I was a representative for women, mainly, Mm -hmm. because I was the only woman there for people of my generation. Most of the judges there were not even baby boomers. They were World War II type 
generations, I guess the greatest generation folks, and I'm coming in as a baby boomer. There was some upset. I, it was plain. You know, I was left out of things, talked mm-hmm. over things. But there were a couple of ju- justices, as they're called, who took me aside and told me I had a lot of talent and just stick in it, just stick with it. So you had some allies. I did. Certainly. I did. I did. I think I was liked there. By well, most people. This is, uh, it's an elected position for a Supreme Court ju- justice uh, in the state of Georgia, six-year term, except in the case of a vacancy, which That's is correct. when uh, Governor Miller named you. Would you have run for that position? Probably not then. You know, if it, well, if it had been an open seat with no uh, incumbent running, I might have considered it. But remember now, I was... Only 36, and I'd only been at Fulton County Superior Court one term. I was the first woman in Fulton County Superior Court, so I'd break broken through that there were, they had, the governor just appointed two other women, so that was changing, but probably not then. But, uh, you know, in effect, I, okay, so with this appointment, I was appointed in February, but the seat expired in December. Mm-hmm. So I, in effect, had to had run. Had to run. Exactly. I, I was appointed in February. Uh, qual- qualifying was in May, and the election was over in November. So I had to start my job, do my work, and run at the same time. Weren't you also getting a master, another degree? I was. Time? I was working, uh, trying to get my uh, master's at the at University of Virginia in appell- advanced appellate studies. You know, I I juggle. You know, I know how to juggle things. So, and th- but that was mainly a summer program. I take the kids to, and I'd work on the thesis on the side. Mm-hmm. But this is a continuation of public service, and as you said, the court needed some generational energy, female energy, woman of color energy. So, what did you bring to the state's highest court, and how did you express that? Oh. Um, Everybody that comes to the court brings themselves, and it, it's uh, always a little different. I, I, the way I like to describe it is everybody who comes to the court at that time, there were seven justices, looks at a case through the lens of their own experience. And I have what's uh, something a little bit different. I have a female, for whatever that means, Uh, experience, and I'm an African-American, so that's a little bit different to not to say that all women think think alike or all African-Americans, but if everybody at the table is a white guy, uh, you're not going to get the complexity, the depth, all of the various ways of looking at a case or understanding thought or what some people might be thinking that's really necessary when you're on the highest court uh, where there is no other resort. This mm-hmm. is the court of last resort. So our courts of last resort need to be diverse. They need to have a diversity of opinion and thought and viewpoint, and that's that's critical. Well, and you brought programs that spearheading the Georgia Supreme Court's Commission on Children, Marriage, and Family Law. Right. That would probably have only been brought by a woman. Mm-hmm. And then so, the Committee on Civil Justice developing. That, well, tell us about that. That would have only probably been brought by a progressive, yeah, and that 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 the goal there is to make sure that as many Georgians as possible, low income residents, low income, and but so so working class mm-hmm. uh, have access to lawyers and justice. I mean, lawyers are expensive. 
I mean, I sometimes say I couldn't afford the the the. I could barely afford the rates that I I have to charge at the big law firm that I'm in. It's it's expensive, so we need to make sure that we do our share. Lawyers need to make sure that we do our share to make sure that the monopoly we have uh, doesn't exclude so many people. But were you conscious at that point of representing, so to oh, speak? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and, and what did that mean for you? Well, it me- meant that I could not fail. It meant that I had to work extra hard, maybe doubly hard, because I had people banking on me. You know, that's been uh, something I've had to live with my entire life. Well, I just it could, sounds like that. Yeah. Many hopes when you are a person who it's steps different. forward as often as you do, there's a lot pinned on you. Yes. You know, sometimes I used to think I cannot let this, I can't mess this up. My grand, my mother's mother taught, brought in laundry. I cannot mess this up. This is an opportunity I've been given and I got to make it, I, I just have to, I have to be the first, but I can't be the last. And then in 2005, you were elected as Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. Another absolutely historic moment, another barrier broken in Georgia, in America. What does that mean for you? Or what did it at the time? Are you, you know, conscious of... No, probably not. You know, if uh, you if you were, would that be overwhelming? Maybe. You know, I just I've never I think one of the good things I've got from God is, uh, you know, I'm always I'm not sure. I'm not sure if a woman's thing, maybe as opposed to an overconfidence. Oh, here I am. I can, you know, get out of the way. Let me handle it. But I was driving around uh, the perimeter and this thought came to me, at, like the day after I was elected by my colleagues, that just God doesn't make mistakes. They're, you're here for a reason. You're going to do it. You'll be do it in your own style. People will be happy. They'll be fine with that. And you'll be okay. This isn't a mistake. I've been trained to do this my whole life from the minute I was born. I can do this. And it, I never had a, a real concern after that. If you're just joining us, my guest is the Honorable Leah Ward-Sears, and we're talking about her tenure in Georgia Supreme Court as both a justice and then as a chief justice. Well, just to go back to that kind of the swagger that many people have and that women don't necessarily get built in, right? even if you have parents who encouraged you like yours did. Um, quote from you, I do wonder, Jesus, do you have to become chief justice to get the same respect as the first year white guy out of law school gets automatically? Did I say that? That's what I think. So I could have said that. But I just wonder where you got that. But I have noticed that. That I mean, yes, so I, you, I've thought about that. I, I I do get respect now, but I didn't when I was a first year, even you know, at the firm uh, that other people got. It just seemed almost automatic. But uh, I had to a lot. I had to prove. A lot more that I had to prove. So, but these elections for Supreme Court of Georgia and then as a just, as chief justice, they're nonpartisan, but different judges, of course, embrace different opinions as to the meaning and the purpose of the law, the reading of the Constitution. Where do you think you fall on that spectrum? I actually think I fall probably in the middle, slightly to the left, depending on the issue. Mm-hmm. Because Yeah, that's the thing about your record. There yeah, are some surprises there. Yeah, because sl- sometimes, given the 
uh, growing up in the home of a of an army colonel pilot, I can swing. I'm always in the middle, but slightly to the right. I mean, sometimes even I, my husband says I have an old fashioned sense of values that. Uh, people don't understand. They're confused by them. Mm-hmm. Now. That, that's so. another. I, uh, I've seen several quotes from you uh, about the sanctity of a real partnership, yeah, having a mother go- and a father. You right. know, like marriage is. Yeah. Which, no, which, one, no one goes with that anymore. But I still believe really strongly, and that's not to say it can't be two fathers or two mothers. But I do. I do believe that children do better when they're fit, when they're. Uh, uh, Parents commit to one another, and when they commit to one another in marriage, you know, I think the family does better. It's economically. I mean, I visited many prisons in Georgia, and most of those prisons are inhabited by men who are reared by single parents in uh, uh, poverty. Not all, but who were reared by single parents, single mothers. Uh, who had a difficult time rearing them, where the fathers abandoned them. I don't like to see, for a couple of reasons, fathers abandon their children, and then the and then uh, mothers bear the burden of bringing up these children. Uh, it's just too much, you know. And sometimes I think women let men off the hook. I'll do it myself, mm-hmm. you know. Well, a child needs his father as as much as his mother. The, the, and the, I've been a single mother for, you know, I got divorced and and all of that. And I know how difficult it is to raise a child. Oh, by yourself. It is. Yeah, I think people just need to be loved. Yeah, that's right. And and maybe that's one of the things that Testament you were talking about visiting people in prisons. And we know from women in prisons right. that uh, almost I'm, I'm, I can't quote this, but like 80 to 89 to 95 percent of them have been sexually abused at some point. That's many of them have. I don't know about that. So the, I, I wouldn't be these, surprised. Right. So okay. we have these factors that right. in people's lives that lead them to prison. Exactly. Oftentimes. But this, so that's a progressive perspective, you know, that, that people have things in their life that lead them down the wrong path. So that's you're exactly right. So it is a progressive perspective, but it's sort of an old fashioned get married, stay married. And I'm not ridiculous. Again, I've been divorced and I expect divorce to continue. Uh, some people need to get divorced. I, I think what really drives me nuts is the choice some people make to have children all by themselves. Uh, because it by, takes a lot to raise a child. It does. Yeah. It does. No, I understand that. Okay. And, but, you know, th- this is also, those are one of those sort of culture war flashpoints, isn't yeah, it, in some it ways. Is. And this is something going on in our culture right now, maintaining civility with people who don't agree with you. Right. And in a court situation, you know, a bench with seven people as chief justice, there are, we live in a society where people seem even less and less able to have a conversation with people of different perspectives. I've always wondered how justices manage that in that kind of setting. We did. I mean, that, that, well, we just, you would be ostracized if you, uh, we seem to understand that there was a need for all the different opinions at the table. And I, I mean, some of my best colleagues were people I philosophically 100% thought were all wet, totally 
out of this world, and they thought the same about me. But yet, because that we did have some things in common, uh, so-and-so would be down the hall working on a Sunday on the same case that I'd be down the hall working on a Sunday. We'd meet for coffee or meet for tea, and that's just what you do. You know, that's just, you. you re, it's called respect. Mm. And we you can't be on the Supreme Court if you don't have respect for your uh, brethren and sisters, you know, your your colleagues. Uh, that's but, just what, uh, and, and one, that's what Americans used to do so much better. That's what I wanted to ask we you about. Where is that. that gone? I mean, it's just out the, you know, with I, I guess with talk shock. I mean, that's how I grew. You know, I was a Girl Scout. My brothers were Boy Scouts. That's what we were taught growing up. That that uh, why someone may not agree with you. Uh, they have the right to live the life that they want to live. Mm-hmm. And and I do believe, I have my beliefs, but I do respect uh, somebody else's right to live their life the way they want to. So how do you, do you just avoid this in a conversation? No. Do you, do you, you actually talk it out? I mean, well, you're, you're known for being friends with Andrew Young and Justice Clarence Thomas. Right. <laughs> we, we talk about it. I don't, I'm not a tip, you can tell by as, how chatty I am. I'm not one to tiptoe around things, but it's not important to always, I've been told all my life, to bring things up that are uncomfortable, but I also don't shy, necessarily shy away from them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try to be graceful and dignified, uh, bring, talk about things when it's appropriate, and when, not when it's not appropriate. So as a little girl, inspired by seeing uh, human rights addressed in the courts, civil rights addressed in the courts. And, and human rights and civil rights not being addressed on the streets and in the schools. All right. So, but now, then you, there you are as chief justice. Did you see the judicial system from this, that perspective, you know, the impact and thinking about how, what you could do as a justice? I'm not saying I, an activist, but you know what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, I do, did. Yeah. I understand. I, uh, I like to make decisions. I liked the power. I like being, being a woman that actually says I like the power of being able to get something done, you know, that the, what's going out that day or the next day is is uh, a decision that will have a, a, a make life for some people much better. I liked that, so I, I did like the kind of work that I'm doing. I'm, I'm uh, retired from the bench now, right. but, and I have clients. I like representing my clients. Uh, to make try to make their lives better. I just like doing that. I wonder now, uh, from your perspective, you retired from the bench in 2009. Have I yes. got that right? Yes. So 10 years back in private practice. Is it helpful to know how the judges think? Yes. Yeah. It's helpful to know the process. Yeah. It's helpful to know what's going on behind the curtain. Even if it's new justices or judges, you know how you know how it goes down. You know, not everybody is X or not everybody is Y. And it's kind of interesting because uh, many lawyers don't seem to get that. And so they're good, but they don't seem to understand how the inside, how the sausage is made mm-hmm. and maybe kind of miss it a bit. Well, as a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, you mentioned earlier the difference between state 
state values or state law and federal law. How did you reconcile those, the cases that you were hearing in Georgia that reflected the people, the much more conservative, often uh, religious-based nature of the people in the state, and then the national ideas or national or moral values? Well, while I was on the Supreme Court of Georgia, I followed state law unless state law, unless federal law, is, it's called preempted. Unless federal law preempted or took over state law, which few do, you just you follow state law. And I, I followed the state constitution as well. Well, of course. So, but are but, there landmark cases or right. major decisions that came up for you that where the two yes. seem to butt I mean, up against each other? Yeah, particularly in the criminal area, mm. death penalty cases. Green versus state yeah, case, I'm no, thinking all, Yeah, all those. I mean, there's a big case, I think, that just came down, I think, because I just glanced at it in the paper, Foster, uh, case uh, Foster, that... Uh, went up to the Supreme Court. It's a case out of Rome, Georgia, where uh, all the blacks were stricken from the jury. It w- actually went up to the uh, uh, the United States United Supreme States Court. Supreme Court, and I think it was just recently it came back down because of the problems. Uh, and that that was federal law. We got it all wrong, and then the federal courts got it right. And I think I think I saw the other day that the uh, Rome DA just dismissed it. It's Foster versus Chapman. Yes, that's it. That's it. Well, you certainly had your share of critics. There were people who did want you unseated. What did that feel like, being targeted in that way? Uh, Exhausting. I bet. Yeah, I I ran three times statewide, and I always had opposition. Uh, And main, the main, the first couple of times, or the second, the second two times, was mainly concerning my opinions about LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was not popular then, and I started off as I dissent, I dissent, Mm -hmm. I dissent. And as the court finally moved into the 21st century, uh, things started to change. But when I first uh, was upset about the laws that discriminated against gay and lesbian citizens— uh, that was very different. I mean, that was very new at the court. It's very new in the law in Georgia. And I was thought of as sort of fr- freaky, mm-hmm. you know, after a while they all caught on. But I took I took a lot for trying to move that ball down the road. Do you think that as a woman, as a woman of color in that position, you were held to a different standard that people looked at you? They, they could zero in on you in a much different way? Yes. You mm-hmm. know, it just if you put my picture up in some parts of the state, uh, I, it's an automatic negative reaction. So, but I also think being a woman of color uh, informed me as this is a civil rights dispute Mm -hmm. and it's just more of the same I've been used to all my life and I I don't want this to go down the way other civil the the rights of women the rights of African Americans the the rights of of uh, minorities I didn't want it to go in that direction so I was very surprised to kind of get in on the tail end of the race and women thing and in the beginning of the of the uh, LGBT thing. It was just, but, you know, the, uh, you're where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. How I got over
And Mahalia Jackson now with How I Got Over as we head into a break. We will be right back with Justice Leah Ward Sears. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with the Honorable Leah Ward Sears. Behind the bench in Georgia Supreme Court, there is an inscription on the wall. It reads, Fiat Justitia Ruit Selim. It's Latin for Let Justice Be Done, Though the Heavens Fall. Well, we've been speaking with the Honorable Justice Ward Sears about her time on the bench beneath that very quotation, and she's with me in the studio. That is such an interesting perspective. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. How do you interpret that? That means that that's the most important thing to happen, and I, and I agree with that. Uh, it doesn't matter what that that is what we are going to strive for, justice. So uh, why, after sitting under that august bench for uh, 27 years, what led you to decide to retire and resume private practice? Well, remember, I went on the bench at 36, yeah. which is really odd. So by the time I had finished being chief justice, I was 54. And so I'd peaked out. I mean, I could have gone back in rotation, but my husband, Haskell Ward, always challenged me. What, Like, you've been at this now for over 20 years with the Fulton County, the traffic court. You've done the Supreme Court. Are you just going to, like, one day I'll come to your chambers? You'll just be, like, keeled over? <laughs> you have time, he said, to build another life, try something else new. And uh, I took him up on it. Uh, he, you know, he said— Try it. And uh, he had been deputy mayor of New York City for a while, and he'd seen people stay on too long. You know, there's a time to leave. There's a time, you know, the there's yeah. a time for everything. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot in private practice. Interesting thing was private practice was very different from... When uh, you had left oh, it? Oh, absolutely. The law, at least in larger law firms, had become more... You know, when we were practicing in the 80s, it was more like it was changing, but it was a more of a profession and it's still a profession, but it's it's has it's more business like now. Just just like doctors, where doctors used to be revered and all this and, and have it, time to have time. a conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They aren't timed yeah. and all that. Uh, it's everything's become more of a business. And I it took me a few years to learn how to become a businesswoman. And uh, I resisted it at first. I mean, I didn't know how to text, uh, didn't know what a text was, because I I thought texts were the big books in the library with all this great, you know. So it, I either knew way more than most uh, lawyers knew about the inner workings of how things go or way less. But in a few years, I actually got to, to love, I like being a businesswoman. I love being able to say what I want to say anytime I want to say it. I love being out of the cloister of being on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. It's freeing and and I like working with people. Did Have you ever talked to your friend, Justice Clarence Thomas, about the experience of serving on a court like that? Uh, we have. He seems to like, you know, he went on a little older than I am. Mm -hmm. And I think he likes it. And I think he's going to stay for quite a long time. Uh, it just wasn't for me. 
So, but had you, you did make the President Obama's short list uh, for appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court, yes. highest court in the country, not once but twice. Would you have taken that job? Yes, I would have taken it. I mean, it, going through the process is is extremely burdensome. Yeah. Okay. It. I mean, you're an open book, and my husband wasn't thrilled. He's a private person. wasn't thrilled about. Uh, the having your medical records, your dental records, Everything. your children be Facebooked by the White House, all that kind of stuff. But I would have done it again as a mission. If I had been able to get there, my view was, then that's where I needed to be. And I would do that because that's where I should be. Had you been appointed, of course, you would have been the first African-American woman in that role. Do you like being this person to break the barriers? That is a very good question. If do I like it? Oh, oh, <laughs> uh, I must. I don't. It's not that I like it. I believe that this is who I am. I, that I am a leader. In everyone leads in part, but my leadership style is that I am a catalyst for change. So I believe that I was trained from birth to go in there and shake things up. When that's done, I think somebody else should come in and run it. I'm not that fascinated by running systems. I like to jiggle them up, get them started, and hand it off. I'm willing to walk walk through that piece. And then I'm not a bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want to just sit there for 20 years. Well, so you're the the fire starter lighting it, not the one who's bringing more logs to tend it or sweeping up the ashes, certainly. Right. But is there a cost to that? I mean, in your book, the biography, the first one, full biography written about you, it's called Seizing Serendipity by Rebecca Davis, came out in 2017, goes through some of the things that we have talked about. But is there is there a cost? I think so. Yeah. I think there is a physical, emotional. Uh, I I lean on my family and friends a lot to be to prop me up. It could be it's a uh, burdensome. Uh, you know, you some days you just have to get up and keep going. Mm. But I I can't sit here and say that it hasn't had. Uh, a health or wellness cause. But there are things I do to take good care mm-hmm. of myself. You know, I I, I do self-care mm-hmm. because I have to. Uh, if I don't, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And I'm getting older now, so I need more self-care. More massages, please. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Advice from the right, trust, right. her honor. <laughs> All right. Those are things that you can do in your professional life as you, you know, something that you have absolute competence in moving forward. But you went through, you know, some painful things. You went through a divorce. And I'm I'm so sorry. I, I don't know if this is something you want to talk about, but this the death of your brother, the suicide yes, of your brother. Yes. That which, was very hard. Of course. Right, I mean, how, right. how, how is one equipped for something like that? You know, when uh, uh, my brother, Tommy, William Thomas Sears, who uh, uh, Naval Academy graduate, Stanford Law, uh, had suffered from depression. When I got the call, the, the second thought I had, first, I didn't know what had happened, you know, but when she said he took his own life, mm-hmm. I knew he had because it clicked in my, I, I think people who have are suicide survivors is what we're called. But yeah, I, I could see that. I thought, but then the third thing I thought was, you will get through this Mm. because 
everybody you know, whether you know them or not, has had something terrible like this happen in their life. May not have been suicide. And and all I said to myself is, this is your time. You're going to live with, have to live with this the rest of your life. But so does everybody else. Everyone else is caring around, Mm. and you're going to do it, and it'll make you understand what everybody else is going through. This is your time. Do something with it. That's interesting to me because on the one level, I I also have, you know, mental illness in my family. And, you know, so inside of a family system, you see there's really the luck of the draw. There's so many contributing factors. But I think anybody would look at you and think, wow, what an exceptional woman. Look what she has done in her life. But there are these things that happen in our lives we realize we're not so exceptional. Thank you. We've, no, you know, yeah. just like everybody else, right. there's going to be sadness. There's going to be tragedy. Right. There's going to be terrible disappointment. Right. How and you- I've had all of that. You know, I had a terrible divorce. It was my, my first big failure. You know, it just didn't. Where after 20 years, I really wanted this to. It just couldn't. And uh, that grieves me. All of this, you know, all of the sad things, I call them the rainy days, grieve me uh, now. I mean, my uh, oh, my youngest brother, my only living brother, lost his son, uh, who was enrolled in the acad- in the Naval Academy to leukemia at oh, 20, to I'm December 6th. We buried him in January. And so, I mean, it's terrible, but every family goes through this. And, and it's good for people to understand that you're, I mean, no one's like just walking around, uh, uh, you know, Superman. Everybody, everybody, you know, has to be Lois or Clark Kent at some point. Or has their personal kryptonite. Yes, right. And, oh, and, I love that. That's so. <laughs> that's sorry. so. I, well, I, I actually also, you know, the passing of my father a couple of years, I know, I know that was a huge thing for you. I'm right. so sorry. When did he pass? He was 30, uh, he was 62, so uh, 1989. A young man. Yeah, right. It was that was crushing. I can only imagine. Um, I know uh, in reading about your history, when you were a kid, you did a book report about Constance Baker Motley, first black woman to sit on a U.S. district court bench. I'm wondering about the dream that you're living now uh, as a little girl. What would what would your advice be to a little girl who was writing a book report about the honorable Justice Leah Ward Sears? You know, I don't know yet what my legacy is because, you know, we live longer these days, hopefully, and I hope that my legacy is not yet finished. Uh, But I will say one thing that's imperative for girls and boys, too, is you've got to stay persistent. You have to stay persistent. And... uh, you have to be kind. I mean, get up every morning and decide that you're going to be a decent person to everyone. That's really important to everyone that you meet. And uh, and be careful about the partner that you take. That's very important, the person you select to walk through life with. And so be, 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 be careful. I'm thinking that you know, now you are not sitting on the bench seeing cases come through. Obviously, we've had the heartbeat bill that right. has now uh, been signed by the governor. Um, and as a woman who has stood for so many women, this is obviously an issue that not just the ACLU or in Planned Parenthood, but many women's groups have picked up. 
When you're watching these kind of legislations, do you miss being in a position to say, I could do something about that? I can still do something about it. You know, I was wondering uh, when the this happened, uh, like, should I? I know Andrea Young, who's the <laughs> head of the AC. Should I give Andrea a call and sign on to this? Because this is non, this is unconstitutional. And I have the skills as a lawyer to, uh, yeah, I can, I can still do a lot. And I, I chose not to because I, I got another really great case, but I still always spend time on a cause that that is near and dear to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I always do that. But also in private practice, you can you can take clients that obviously are, can be very high profile. I was just reading about the case of Harvard Law professor Ronald Sullivan withdrew from Harvey Weinstein's defense team. He was under a great deal of right. pressure from students. You know, the, there's the we represent reprehensible people or people accused of reprehensible crimes because they deserve a good uh, a, a good defense. Right. People don't understand that. Uh, lawyers are there to represent uh, represent people, whether they're guilty or innocent. In our society, thank God, in our country, in our democracy, everybody is entitled to get good quality legal representation whether they're guilty or innocent or bad or good or what have you. That's our adversarial system. And sometimes lawyers have to represent people that they don't may not personally like or agree with their position. I have clients now that personally uh, I probably, you know, might disagree with them. But I'm, I'm sure as heck am going to give them the absolute best that I can for them. Is there anybody that you would not defend? Probably are, but I, I haven't yet met them. You have uh, just accomplished so much in your career and your life, and you said, you know, you like to move on to the next thing, start the next fire. Anything else that you're aiming for? What do you? I would like to be able, I, I'm happy at Smith Gambrell Russell, so I plan to stay there for a while. Uh but if I if I had a next phase, I would probably be uh, a writer. Of I'd like to spend more time writing. I love to write. I mean, I love to not about the law, just about things, things that hit me. I'd love to be an op-ed writer, for example, something like like that, or a writer about ethics. I'd love to have an ethics column where people write in, like, sort of, Dear Abby, but it's Dear Ethicist, or Dear Justice Sear. said, I, you know, I don't know, the napkin should be on this side of, because I like all <laughs> that kind of stuff. How should it, how should we behave in a, in a time where uh, behaviors are so fluid? Mm. And, you know, there, it's not just, there's not just one way to do it. What a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This, it's been lovely. Thank you. That's the Honorable Leah Ward Sears, a woman with a history of firsts, including becoming the first African-American chief justice in the country and in the state of Georgia Supreme Court. That is all we have time for today, but we will leave you with You'll Never Walk Alone by the Boys Choir of Harlem, a song chosen by the Honorable Leah Ward Sears herself, a woman of considerable jurisprudence, so I'm not going to argue. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. 
Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.